All right, go ahead and turn to Psalm 97, if you would. Psalm 97. It's also on your prayer sheet if you need to look at it there. We'll start as we do with uh, what are some of the poetic devices. Um, okay. So you see that in, in number one there, or verse one? Yeah. Island should be glad. Yeah. So it's kind of like you have the islands and you draw a smiley face on? No. So that's, that's personification, right? Something that's not really a thing uh, seen as praising God. Um, probably, I mean, it could be personification or it could be a, uh, like a related thing, like the people living on the islands, the people living throughout the earth are the ones who are supposed to rejoice. That's probably... Uh, the, the closer idea there. Uh, it, it's really interesting to me as we look at these psalms, these kingship psalms, just the broad scope of what, who is aware of God's presence and who is supposed to be praising God. Because I think sometimes it's easy to have the idea that Israelites knew God and everybody else had no idea, but there's these calls to worship not just to the people of Israel, but of the whole earth. Uh, what about verse 2? Pretty much all of verse 2. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, when it says that they are the foundations of his throne, what is it saying? Yeah, his rule is characterized by those things, right? Yeah. Okay. And um, the imagery of clouds and thick darkness potentially is sort of the picture of a storm. Uh, we definitely see actual darkness and clouds surrounding him when he meets with Moses in the book of Exodus. Um, but uh, just this picture of him, you know, the, the Greek mythology, you have the idea of, of Zeus or uh, Norse mythology of Thor being a kind of a god of the skies. But those are imperfect pictures because God is a god both of the sky and of the ground and of the sea and of everything, right? And they had to come up with like 20 different gods to cover the full scope of who God is in himself. How about verse 3? Nothing there. Okay. <laughs> what, is, what is fire associated with in the Old Testament? Judgment. Judgment. Sometimes God's holiness, right? So the burning bush, this is holy ground, take off your shoes. I don't know that we have to say it's one or the other. It can be both at the same time, both holiness and his judgment as it comes to the earth because we do see that in verse 12, give thanks to the holy name and the fact that he delivers his godly ones and punishes the wicked. It can all happen at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's judgment in verse 3, but God's presence at the same time, yes. God's presence, the pillar of fire, God's presence on behalf of his people. Um, if you remember, and this is an interesting point as we kind of tie those two ideas together, the pillar of cloud is in front of them as they come up to the Red Sea, and then it comes around behind them to sort of shield them from Pharaoh and his armies. So God's presence and God's judgment, all that kind of wrapped up in one, so yeah. Um, how about verse 4? Yeah, the earth saw. Okay, all the people of the earth probably is the idea there. How about verse 5? 
Okay? There's another psalm where it talks about the Lord comes down and the mountains will smoke at His passing, like that kind of idea. Um, if God is this all-consuming fire, it's almost as though He sets the world on fire by His very presence, um, and that His weight is too great for the mountains to bear up under. Um, how about verse 6? Yeah. I think we have in that verse kind of a parallel between creation declaring God's glory and all the people seeing it. Kind of the Psalm 8 idea combined with, um, you know, praise, praise from, of God by the people. How about verse 7? Yeah, sort of calls to mind the, the, the thing with Dagon and the Philistines with the Ark of the Covenants traveling around, wrecking and de causing devastation for them. It's like, your idols, God knocks them over. Hey, you need to worship me, which is unsettling and a little bit you know, shameful, I think, if your idol gets knocked over and you have to go pick it back up. And then it breaks and you have to super glue it back together and you're like, all right, maybe we need to send this away. Um, <coughs> yeah. Um, Okay, uh, verse 8. Yeah, probably Zion standing for Jerusalem, uh, basically the people who live in Jerusalem, and by extension all of the people of God, because it says the daughters of Judah. How about verse 10? Yeah, if he preserves their souls, what's he saying he's doing? Yeah, yeah, and I think we need to think of, uh, when we see the word soul, it has more of the idea of life in the Old Testament than soul as like spiritual being, which is not to say the two are mutually exclusive, but it's probably a physical preservation more than got saved kind of idea like we tend to use the phrase today. Verse 11 is a really interesting picture. Okay. And even the second phrase, I think, is the idea that gladness is also sown. So there are exceptions to this, like um, I think it's Psalm 126. Let's see if I can find it here. Can't turn the pages. There we go. Psalm 126.5 says, Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. So there are exceptions to you reap exactly what you sow. But here it parallels very much, I think, this idea light is sown and gladness is sown, which means they're going to reap what? Light and gladness, right? So God and, and, and light, I think, to the extent is a sign of God's presence and of goodness and all those sorts of things. It is God is almost storing it up for them, kind of like you plant seed and then the harvest comes later. Uh, yeah, we could probably see that as well. There's something I'll bring out in James here in a minute as we go through it again. What are some repeated thoughts? 
Okay. Okay. So God's power, God's being exalted and glorious, okay. Do we see the idea of joy at all in this psalm? Yeah, we see it in verse 1, verse 8, verse 11 and 12, and there may be another one that I missed, but at least those four verses, we see this idea of rejoicing or being glad. The storm, okay, God's righteousness. Yeah, we see that particularly in verse 2. Righteous and justice are the foundation of his throne. And verse 10, uh, where it says, hate evil, those who love the Lord. So if we're supposed to hate evil, it's because of God is being righteous. And uh, the righteous ones, verse 12, are supposed to be glad in him. There's also this idea of fear or shame coming upon idols and those who worship them. In verse 3, his adversaries are burned up. In 7, let those be ashamed. Verse 9, he's exalted above the gods. Uh, type of psalm, same kind of one as we've been looking at the last few weeks. It's a praise psalm and probably this subcategory of being a kingship psalm. What are some truths about God, just broadly, in light of the rest of the kingship psalms? He's righteous and powerful, and what's his position? He's the king, okay? He reigns. He's the king, he reigns, okay? Uh, but then along the, alongside that, he's powerful and he's glorious. What are some things that we see that are true about us in terms of our response or the people's response? Yeah, we see rejoicing. I think there's a degree to which we're also supposed to fear God. And then also hate evil, verse 10. So rejoice, fear God, and hate evil. So let me try to bring some of these ideas together. Um, have you ever been in a really terrific storm and you see lightning flash all over and thunder cracking and then uh, you, you hear the thunder and then you see... Maybe the lightning strikes a tree and sets it on fire. Um, and then there's just this huge calamity of the storm. We see in that a picture of the sort of glory that is uh, ascribed to God by the psalmist. I think the first thing that we're supposed to do in response to God and who He is is rejoice in God's rule. So first of all, verse 1, God reigns, so the earth is supposed to rejoice and the islands be glad. And so all peoples are supposed to see, because God is king, we ought to rejoice. And then why? Because God is robed in glory. He's clothed in clouds and thick darkness. The foundation of his throne is righteousness and justice. And then we see God punishing the wicked. And so we're supposed to rejoice because God is glorious, because God reigns, because he's glorious, because he punishes the wicked. Um, think about... Um, instances in the Old Testament where fire comes and, and consumes something. Uh, sometimes it consumes those who were rebelling against God. Sometimes it, as a sign of God's presence in the story of Elijah with the prophets of Baal, comes down, burns up the altar, burns up the sacrifice, kind of like burns it down to the ground and it, it's still burning, right? And so if God can do that with something that's soaked in water, and has no possibility of being actually burning, certainly he can do it with the entirety of the earth. And so uh, First Peter, or Second Peter and Jude talks about the earth being reshaped by fire 
so intense that the elements melt with the fervent heat as a sign of God's wrath. And so this is perhaps a small anticipation of that great day of judgment and the day of the Lord in which God consumes his enemies. Um, think about the, uh, um, the battle of Armageddon. Let's see if I can pull it up here. Um, Revelation 20, verse 9, This number of them is like the sand of the seashore. They come up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints of the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And so I think what we see here in Psalm 97 is a remembrance of what God had done in the past, a reality that he can do it now, and an anticipation that he's going to do it in the future to destroy his enemies, completely consuming them. This destruction is not a, um, does not give weight to the idea of annihilation, like that people cease to exist and there's no such place as hell, because Jesus talks about the idea of the fire is not put out and the worm doesn't die several times, for example, in the Gospel of Mark. Um, we see God showing his power in just the presence of his coming. We saw, talked about that in verses 4 and 5. The lightning lit up the world. Not just a little bit of lightning here, a little bit of lightning there, but sometimes you get lightning that flashes and lights up the entire sky. And that's sort of the picture of what we have here. And then the mountains melting like wax. Um, again, we talked about the fact that when someone comes, when God comes down, the earth cannot support the weight of his glory. And the fire of his holiness sort of causes even the very stones themselves to melt either literally or figuratively. Literally, I think, when we come to Second Peter and Jude. Uh, and then all creation declares God's righteousness and glory. How, does the, how do the heavens declare God's righteousness? Well, the fact that here's this proper order that all the planets and everything else follows is a sign of God's glory being declared um, because God's God's righteousness has to do with sort of his perfect standard. And so the fact that the world and the earth follow the patterns that he's established and follow them in proper order is, I think, a visible picture of his righteousness. But by his actions on behalf of his people, all the people see his glory as well. So the first thing is to rejoice in God's rule. The second thing is to feel shame or joy depending on your relationship with God. So verse 7, if you worship idols, be ashamed. If you serve graven images, if you boast in idols, even your idols are forced to worship God and bow in submission before him. The story of Dagon and the Philistines, their idol falls down. The story of other gods, um, they're stolen, they're defeated in battle, they're knocked down and destroyed. Uh, even the king of Assyria says, look, I destroyed all these idols. Why would you worship them? And he had a reasonable point. Uh, he took it too far and said, and God can't help you either, but, but the fact that all these other idols are destroyed is a sign that God is above all of them. And why should they be ashamed of serving graven images and boasting of idols? Because it violates the first and second commandment that God laid out for the people of Israel. Don't make graven images. Don't serve any god other than the one true God. And so, if you and I worship idols, there is a right sense in which we ought to be ashamed. We should not say, oh, I worship idols, and this is normal. Everybody around me worships idols, so it's not a big deal. 
We should feel guilty about it. We should feel badly about it. And when we do, we shouldn't suppress it and say, well, but everybody does it, so it's supposed to be okay. We should acknowledge that the reason that I feel badly about worshiping this idol is because God didn't make me to worship idols. He made me to worship Him. In contrast, we could rejoice if God is our God. Zion hears and is glad the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments, O God. Thinking back again to that section of Isaiah that when, when God's judgment rolls down over the, over the world, God's people can rest secure and even rejoice in His coming. And then the reason in verse 9, because if God is the true God, because God is the true God above any idols or created things. God is over all the earth. Anything that is made, God is above it and greater than it and the reason that it exists. And God is greater than anything that his created things have made. So if God is greater than the ones who are created, he's certainly greater that, than the one, things that the created ones have made. Right? God makes people. He's greater than people. And if people make idols, the idols can't be greater than people, which means God's greater than all of them together. Third thing we see is find joy by hating evil because God helps and rewards. So if we're supposed to fear God, feel shame or joy depending on our relationship with Him, then these last few verses say to find joy by hating evil. Hate evil because God preserves you from that evil. He preserves the souls of His godly one. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Uh, there's interesting parallels here for me as I consider what it says at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes where it says, when the whole matter has been heard, here is the conclusion of it. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything that's hidden, whether it's good or evil. Proverbs 8, verse 13 says, the fear of God is to hate evil, and it's the beginning of wisdom. And so, if God is delivering you from those who are evil and their evil actions, it makes absolutely no sense to participate in that evil because then God is your enemy. But if God delivers you, you should hate evil, turn aside from it, reject it. I think this is a struggle for us because I think we tend to have an uneasy relationship with evil, but kind of a, hmm, kind of a tolerant attitude toward evil. Yeah, it's bad, but it's not that bad. Uh, Alexander Pope, there's an often quoted line from his poem. He said, uh, Vice is a monster of frightful mien that to be hated needs but to be seen, but seen too often familiar of face we first endure then uh, something then embrace. We see that it's bad, but if we become too familiar with it, we forget that it's bad and we, we take it in. It's kind of like if you said, I'm going to take uh, like a wolf as a pet, right? It's scary, right, the first time you see it, and then you're like, well, maybe I can tame it. Or somebody will keep like a gorilla as a pet, right? Or there was a guy that kept this crazy bird that has these massive talons on its feet. It's called a cassowary. I think it's in New Zealand. And he's like, here's my pet. The thing disemboweled him and left him laying bleeding out in his front yard. That's what sin does. We think, oh, I can train this. It's really cool. It's unique. No one else has this. I'm going to take it in. The reality is everyone else has it, and everyone else has the exact same result. It guts you and leaves you for dead. But we stupidly think, it won't happen to me. 
even though it happens to every other person who follows the same pattern. And so a psalm like this should remind us we should hate evil because God's delivering us from it. And this, I think, is at the core of the gospel message. We tend to think the core of the gospel message is trust in Jesus so you don't go to hell and you get to go to heaven. But the core of the gospel message is you are not in a right relationship with God. You're God's enemy. So God teaches you to hate sin and puts you in his family so that you stop going back to the sin that condemned you to hell in the first place. And not only did God say to stop doing the sin, but God created you to walk in good works, which is where I think the danger comes in that sometimes we feel like we can't lose our salvation. Look at a passage like John 10 and say, our salvation is secure if we believe in Jesus, which is true. But then we take that too far and we say, so believing in Jesus is just a prayer I prayed a long time ago and has nothing to do with the way I live at this moment. And that is the lie and the, the misuse of Scripture that has permeated a lot of churches where people say, well, I prayed a prayer a long time ago, so I must be a Christian. But the point of believing in Jesus is that you are a believer, not a believed. Right? You didn't believe a long time ago and now you don't. What does the Bible call that? Someone who's on the pit of hell teetering and about to fall in. Right? Now, we can argue the theological nuances all day long. Was that person never truly saved or did that person lose salvation? And depending on someone's denominational background, they're going to come to a different conclusion on the specifics of why it came to be. But the Bible is very clear that someone who is in that position should have no confidence in their relationship with God. If you love sin, you are not walking with God. First John says, you know what sin is, you turn away from sin. Hating sin and turning away from it is one of the marks of true salvation. If you don't have that mark of true salvation, you should have very little, if any, assurance that you belong to God. In contrast, there is great hope set out in verse 12. God sows light and gladness for the righteous, for those who are upright in heart. We tend to think that um, we either believe the lie that the Christian life is all about happiness, or we swing way over to the other extreme and we say the Christian life is all dreary and glum and miserable. Right? So the idea that the Christian life is all about happiness from a temporal perspective means that we get caught up in wanting things like money and fame and recognition and lots of stuff and all that kind of thing, which is not what the Bible holds out for us. It says if you follow after Jesus, sooner or later you'll face persecution. But then we jump from there and we come over here and we say, well, I'm just going to be miserable until I die, and that's my fate in life as a believer. And this verse says, God sows light and gladness for the righteous and those who trust in him. And so there is hope and joy to be found in serving Jesus, even in things that are mundane, even in things that are difficult, even in things that take a lot of diligence over a long period of time. There's a, a hymn, and the tune's a little bit flippant maybe, but it says that there's joy in serving Jesus, right? Which is true. So we shouldn't go to the extreme of saying we just want happiness, as in temporal satisfaction and worldliness, and we shouldn't go to the extreme of saying, well, the Christian life is miserable. 
The reality is we will face difficulty, but there is great joy, in fact, the greatest joy in serving and walking after God. So, that leads us to the conclusion of verse 12. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to His holy name. Because God is great, coming down, bending low, causing calamity and destruction and deliverance and all these things, we worship Him, we rejoice in Him. As we evaluate our relationship with Him, we either feel shame or joy based on whether we're right with Him or whether we're worshiping idols. And then, depending on where we find ourselves in our relationship with God, we find that joy by hating evil, seeing the gladness that God brings to His people, and going back to an attitude of thankfulness because God is worthy of our praise. And so as we bring all these things together, I think that we're supposed to fearfully rejoice in our awesome King. God is awesome. He rules. There's an element of reverence. We're to fearfully do this, but we are to rejoice.